0: opportunity to use first John one nine if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can be here tonight to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by your word that as we continue our study and approach the end of the book of Genesis we realize this lays the foundation for all of the rest of Scripture not only is it an opportunity to look back at what transpired in the past as you established uh, Israel on their course called out a people through Abraham and his descendants but how that plan works itself out through history and Father we realize that as we look at these examples they speak to us of your consistency your faithfulness and the fact that your promises will always come true father we pray that we might focus our attention now on your word put aside the cares and distractions of the day that we might uh, be uh, taught by the holy spirit as we continue our growth and our spiritual advance we pray this in christ's name amen all right well i thought tonight i've got both computers up here who knows what's going to happen I 'm going to try see if this works. Okay, we switch computers, and OK, okay Christine, why is this not showing up on the screen? i 'll just drag it over there. Okay, that's too big. Okay F- that's sound. The one that has the what? Oh, that's F7. There it goes. That worked. Okay. So we give everybody a little... You know, the weirdest thing that we all have seen when we go to Israel is when you go over to Jordan and you go to Jerash, which was the, uh, one of the uh, uh, ten cities of the Decapolis. And as you are there, it's one of the lo- it is the largest city uncovered. Date. it's a huge sight wonderful sight and as you go into the theater there which was just incredible the acoustics are unbelievable you just stand down the sweet spot in the middle and you can just talk at a whisper you know, hear your voice up on the top row a huge distance away but then you're greeted by this little group Guess was they started off playing Scotland the Brave. You just you just think you're in some sort of parallel universe or alternate universe or something. That's enough of that. Okay, just thought we'd have something a little bit strange this evening. Nothing like a bunch of. You know, Arabs in the Jordanian army playing Scotland the Brave or Amazing Grace to you, when you on bagpipes nonetheless when you show up. Okay, now i got to see if this will even work. You have no idea what's been going on the last couple of days. Yeah, there we go. Something happened. All right. Okay, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, and we're going to do a wrap-up of the 12 tribes of Israel. And my computer just decided to hibernate. Oh, well. I'll open it in a minute. What I want to do in this lesson, what we've done in the past as we, before I went to Israel, we went through step-by-step each of these prophecies that Jacob gave regarding each of his his 12 sons. We began with uh, Reuben, his firstborn, Reuben, then Simeon and Levi, that's the first three then we went from there to Judah all of those have the same mother they were all uh, children of Leah we went through uh, Judah then Zebulun, Issachar, Dan Gad, Asher uh, Naphtali and Joseph of course was the double blessing through his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim Dinah of course the daughters left out and then the prophecies concluded with Joseph, and then uh, Benjamin. Let me see if I can get the computer working again. So these are the children of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, who become the heads, the fathers, the progenitors of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. We've looked at them individually in terms of the prophecy related to each tribe uh, and now what I want to do is look at them as a, as a unit. The 12 tribes are spoken of several times as a unit because it is through these 12 that the promise to Abraham is carried out. Begin with um begin with uh, Abraham. God had a promise to Abraham that through his descendants... He would bless all people, and specifically he was promised one descendant, a son, and that was Isaac, and then Isaac finally was born when Abraham was 100 years of age, and Isaac then married Rebekah. Isaac uh, and Rebekah had twins, and those twins were Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the younger, but he was designated as the Uh, heir of the promise and the one to receive the blessing and despite his manipulations to try to get it it was already secured because that was what God's uh, promise had been to his parents that the older would serve the younger and that prophecy was given while they were yet within the womb so you have Abraham Isaac and Jacob this is a uh, the, the linear descent from father to son. But when you come to Jacob, it doesn't just go to one son. It is now spread out to his 12 sons. But there's going to be some modifications because one of the sons, Levi, is going to be the head of the priestly tribe. The priestly tribe will not have its own inheritance. So in order to uh, take care of that, you have the uh, replacement of Joseph, by the two tribes of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. The next place you have an emphasis on the 12. If you notice in verse 20, it says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. So they, even though you have the individual components, the 12 tribes, they are viewed as one unit. God's plan, God's promise to Abraham is equally true for all of the sons of Jacob. They will, will be viewed historically as a unit, even though there are differences as indicated by the prophecies that we've studied. They are ultimately viewed as a unit. The next place that we have the 12 tribes emphasized as a unit is in Exodus chapter 28 in the uh, garment of the of the high priest. So why don't you turn your Bible over to Exodus chapter 28. And it's in the garment of the high priest that we see an emphasis on the, uh, the 12 tribes. This is when God gives the uh, regulations for the dress of the high priest, and this is what is going to distinguish him as the high priest. First of all, what we note is that the materials that are used for the ephod and for the breastplate, for the garments of the high priest were extremely expensive they were in some cases rare and in the ancient near east the only people who ever wore garments made out of this kind of a fabric with this much gold and the precious stones were either the highest echelons of royalty or they would sometimes uh, dress the statues of the gods the idols in uh, gold garments woven from gold and this kind of thing so It was only the highest people in society that ever dressed like this. So the very garments that are worn, the fact that they are made with gold and precious stones, indicates that this uh, sets the high priest apart from anyone else. His uniform, as it were, distinguishes him completely from all other people. Second point, such apparel distinguished him as being set apart. This is the Hebrew word, so I have a couple of pictures here, artists' uh, depictions of the uh, garments of the high priest. He had a white undergarment, and then over that is the uh, blue ephod. And then on top of that, there was a multicolored uh, garment that into which is woven the golden breastplate. And on the golden breastplate, there were 12 stones, precious stones and semi-precious stones, representing the tribes of Israel we'll get into that in just a minute this by the way i was as i was researching things today this is a picture of the, of the garment that has been uh, already made by the temple institute in uh, Jerusalem for the high priest when they build the third temple which will be the tribulation temple i found this in a Israel My Glory magazine the photo was taken by Uh, By Randy Price. So as we look at Ezekiel, I mean, Exodus 28, we read, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as a priest. And I've underlined these two words uh, related to the phrase holy garments. And to consecrate him, because the idea in the Hebrew on these words is that this set, these garments set him apart. We spent some time yesterday on the last Monday of each month. I have a, a class here on, uh, for, for pastors, and I've been teaching uh, different uh, aspects of Bible study methods over the last year and a half. And we've been in a section on word studies the last several months and yesterday our word study was on kadash which is the verb form for uh, holiness and we were studying the fact that these words like holy, consecrate uh, sacred uh, sanctify these are all words in English that come out of the word groups that we find in both uh, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament Hebrew is uh, based on the verb kadash you have kadesh, kadosh Various different forms of the, of that QDSH wor, uh, word group that indicates and usually translated holiness. In the New Testament, uh, the noun is hagias, the verb is hagiazo, a noun for sanctification is hagiasmas, it's that whole word group. But in our culture, when you talk about holy, or someone is consecrated, The average person on the street has no idea what that means. The average Christian sitting in a church has no idea what these words mean except they're, these are God words. Everybody's heard them all their life. They talk about them in church. They talk about being holy. They talk about uh, being sanctified. But they have no idea what these words mean. And the average person thinks that holy has something to do with being righteous or pure or morally upright. The problem with that is that there is a form of that word that is used to describe the temple prostitutes that functioned in the fertility worship in the worship of Baal and Asherah and in fact as we were going through yesterday we learned a new word called Herodules. A Herodule is a sanctified prostitute, just thought you'd want to know that, you can use that tomorrow when you're at work and nobody will know what you're talking about. But that's uh, what the word refers to is these temple prostitutes. So how in the world can a temple prostitute, male or female, be considered uh, morally pure or righteous? Well, they can't. And the point that I'm making is the word doesn't have as its core uh, semantic meaning, its core idea of the word has nothing to do with being pure or righteous or upright in behavior or of uh, moral character. It has to do with being set apart to the service of a god so that a temple prostitute has set themselves apart to the service of their uh, deity, even though it's a false god. So that's what holiness means. Kadash means that which is set apart for the use of God, distinguished. And so when we look at a verse like this, It talks about the holy garments. They're unique garments. They are distinguishing garments. They are garments that indicate that he is set apart to the service of God. That's the idea in holiness. And then when you look at verse 3, we read, So you shall speak to all the gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him. Now, How in the world would clothes make you more spiritual? See, as soon as we see that word consecrate, what's vibrating in the back of your head is some nuance of spirituality. But clothes don't make you spiritual, and the lack of clothes or the wrong uniform doesn't make you unspiritual or carnal. What they do is they set him apart. They indicate his station, his position, his role, to serve the people, to serve God by serving the people as the priest. So the garments were to distinguish him and to set him apart visually so that people would be able to identify who Aaron was. And when you go back and one of the things that has interested me as you go back and look at uh, all of the ceremony that's involved and the ritual that's involved in the, in, in the temple, in the tabernacle and in the temple, is we've lost a lot of that today. We live in a society today that's become incredibly informal. You know, most of you are are, are dressed in ways, I bet if you're here and you're over 50, if you're under 40, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But if you're over 50, then you would... And your mother probably wouldn't have let you go to school when you were in the fifth grade dressed like you're dressed right now. My my mother wouldn't let me wear blue jeans except on Go Texan Day. Some of you don't know what that is anymore. But you, you remember those days. I mean, I, couldn't, I wore blue jeans maybe 12 times in 12 years of school, and that was it. And uh, But today we live in such an informal society. People show up to church and wearing sandals and cutoffs and T-shirts and everything because we have no sense of propriety anymore and there is there's is something that happens when you have a sense uh, there's a place for pomp and circumstance for ceremony for proper ritual because it it creates a mood that something that is taking place is serious it is something that is bigger than all of us when we you know the one thing that sticks out in my mind in recent years is the funeral of uh, President Reagan uh, a few years ago, and all of the ritual that go- that is attendant to the the when, when the casket is put on uh, display there at the at the uh, Capitol building in Washington, and you watch all the military honor guard and everything that is involved in that it, it shows it that, that this is something that is a a very special occasion. The individual is someone who is who is honored, and there is much care taken to properly carry out that particular function. And this shows that you think that what is being being, uh, what's taking place, is valuable. It's significant, and you're honoring someone. Often a day we show up at, at church, just dressed the same way we'd show up at a ball game, and yet we lose the sense that that what is going on at church and i 'm thinking more in terms of Sunday morning, which has a there 's something different about Sunday morning than uh, midweek Bible class, that what is going on when we gather to worship God is that we 're gathering to worship god we 're just not going over next door to sit down and watch watch a ball game with our buddies and but we 've lost that in our in our culture today and it 's it's just lowering everything to the uh, lowest common denominator. but you look at the Old Testament and there is And I don't mean ritual in the sense of of just sacred ritual, but there's certain things had to be done a certain way. People dressed a certain way. There's formality. There's pomp. There's circumstance because of the seriousness and significance of the occasion. And part of this shows the uniqueness of the worship of God. He is holy, and that doesn't, although when you talk about God as holy, it does pick up because of other things in the context. Ideas of, of righteousness and justice. But it primarily emphasizes his uniqueness. His distinctiveness. That he is the creator of all things. There is nothing, no one like him. You, we, we only understand God through analogies. Because he is so totally different. And yet this is the God who has created us and the God who desires to have a relationship with us. But he is above all things distinct and unique and separate from everything else. And so those who have the responsibility of teaching and those who have the responsibility of, of leading others to an understanding of God uh, in the Old Testament had this unique wardrobe that would indicate Uh, that particular role and so it is the garments that set him apart as one that the garments then you have a purpose clause the garments were necessary to set him apart for the purpose of his particular role to minister as a priest now along with uh, just the overall uh, makeup of his uniform he also wore a turban And the turban that was worn by the high priest, this is my third point, the turban that was worn by the high priest had on it the Hebrew words uh, Kodesh Adonai. I'm going to use Adonai instead of Yahweh, but it's literally Yahweh. It was uh, holy to the Lord or set apart uh, to the Lord. And this was on his, his turban. The ephod that he wore, I'll go back to the picture here the ephod that he wore was uh, made of all blue according to Exodus 28:31. Uh, it was woven with wool threads. Uh, verse 31 says, You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its op- opening and um, like the opening in a coat of mail so that it doesn't tear. Now then the next verse describes that the bottom hem was uh, decorated with blue, purple, and scarlet pomegranates and then gold bells were hung from the robe so that the people could hear the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he went into the Holy of Holies. This is that place he could go into only once a year. He would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He would take the blood from the sacrificed lamb and place it on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a picture of God's justice and righteousness. The cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant uh, symbolized God's righteousness and justice. And inside the Ark, inside the box, were three things that symbolized Israel's sin, the broken uh, tablets of the law, Aaron's rod that had budded, which represented their rejection of God's provision of leadership. And then there was also some manna because they had grumbled and complained about Uh, what God had provided. They didn't like the angel food God provided, so they were complaining about that, and so that was in the ark. It represented God's sin, so that when the high priest placed the, the blood on the mercy seat, it represented God's satisfaction over the sacrifice that sin was paid for, cleansing took place. But he wore the bells because if for some reason he violated God's regulations in the Holy of Holies and died then they would stop hearing the bells move. And they, that later on, they added a rope to his ankle so they could pull him out <laughs> because no one else could, was allowed to go into uh, the Holy of Holies. There was a verse, uh, Exodus 28, 17 to 18 describes the breastplate. You shall put settings of stones in it Okay, let's stop a minute. Let me describe this a little more so you don't get too confused. On the breastplate, they took the same material uh, from which the ephod was made. It was woven with, uh, they they, they took gold, blue, purple, and scarlet wool threads and uh, wove those together with fine linen. Then they took the fabric and they doubled it over so that it formed a pouch And in that pouch, they would place the Urim and the Thummim. Now, I'll come back and talk about that in a minute. Somebody asked me about that on Sunday. Okay, yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, The Urim and the Thummim were placed in there over the heart of the uh, high priest. And this fabric at the breastplate formed a square, approximately 10 10 inches square. And then on the outside of the breastplate, they... Developed a setting made with gold filigree and 12 precious and semi-precious stones were set there. They didn't stand out. They were basically uh, woven into the fabric itself and these stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Now I have another depiction here that we picked up. Let me see if they're all here. Okay, this is a picture on the lower right of the 12 tribes uh, stones on the breastplate of the high priest this came off of one of those uh, things I brought back from Israel last week and then here is the high priest serving with the temple and we see another depiction you see his his headdress up here his turban then written around the border was the phrase uh, Kodesh Yahweh and then his the blue ephod, the border trimmed with the uh, pomegranates, the bells at the base, and then you have the interwoven fabric that contained the uh, golden breastplate here. So this gives you a good idea of what the uh, how the high priest would be uh, would be dressed. So I had these these stones. Let me find the. The first row, you had a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This is taken from the New King James Version. Uh, This will be the first row. I think King James translates emerald with something else. You have to be, one of the things is we're not absolutely sure what the Hebrew terms refer to in terms of some of these stones, so there's a slight variation. In fact, nine of these 12 stones are identified in Ezekiel 28 in the uh, in the dress of, of, uh, of Lucifer prior to his fall. They're also mentioned in various places in Revelation, but we, have, as I said we, earlier, we have a difficulty identifying all of them. Sardis, topaz, emerald in the first row. Second row, turquoise, sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. These are set in gold uh, gold filigree. Uh, scholars differ on these stones. Some suggest that the sardius was actually a ruby. The carbuncle or the beryl is mentioned here. Some say that King James had carbuncle for that. And, and one, you have a different term for emerald in the, verse 17, and you have emerald instead of turquoise. And verse 18. So there, we just aren't sure. Now there's some things in the Bible that we're certainly going to die for. Die for John 3.16. Die for the book of Romans. I'm not going to die for an identification of these 12 stones. We're, we're just not absolutely sure what the those Hebrew terms uh, refer to. This is his breastplate. Then on his shoulders, let me go back to this diagram. There's He has... Uh, two stones placed like epaulets upon his shoulders. These are made from onyx stones, and each had the names of six tribes inscribed upon it. Now, have a slide here with the Hebrew. The onyx, the word for it in Hebrew was a shoham, and even though it's usually translated onyx, According to the research I did, it could be. Some suggest it was a malachite. Others suggest beryl. Some suggest it was a red stone, such as a cornelian or a ruby. Even others suggest that it was a another type of stone that had uh, would have three layers of stripes on it on a transparent red base but we're not exactly sure what we do know according to the text is that they were told to engrave upon these two stones the names of the sons of Israel six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stones in order of their birth so that would mean that on the first stone you had inscribed or engraved Reuben Simeon Levi Judah Dan and Naphtali and on the other stones were the names of Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Joseph would be placed there in place of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, standing for those two tribes. The purpose of these shoulder stones and then the breastplate was so that when the high priest entered into the, uh, the Holy of Holies, he is bringing with him, he is standing as a representative of of the entire nation their uh, identification their symbols are placed upon him uh, Exodus 28:12 uh, In the second part of the verse uh, we read you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones in other words they're there to remember the nation so Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial he was t- going in and representing those 12 tribes so that there's a, a substitutionary element here. He is in their place, and as he is bringing the blood for the, uh, for the uh, mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, he is doing this in their place. It's a beautiful picture of what took place on the cross. When Jesus Christ is on the cross, he is the substitute for the sins of the world and this is part of his priestly ministry to be the sacrifice in our place and as such as we've studied before all sins were paid for every single sin in human history is taken care of on the cross and had to be taken care of on the cross so that people could be saved now the next element which I alluded to a minute ago that was part of the makeup of the of the uniform of the high priest is, is these two stones that were referred to as the Urim and the thumim. Now the im ending in Hebrew is a plural ending, and that might suggest that there was more than one of each, but or maybe uh, uh, but you can't be sure. We know so little about it. they are simply mentioned in Leviticus eight eight again in Deuteronomy 33, 8 and 10, in Numbers 27:21, and finally in 1 Samuel 28, 6. But we really don't know what how they functioned. They were used as some system of divine guidance where the high priest could ask questions of God and in some way these stones were used to communicate God's answers. Whether they vibrated, whether they glowed, uh, whether one stone was for yes and one stone was for no that's uh, one, one guess nobody actually knows how the Urim and Thummim function. there's no record in scripture there's no indication other than they were used for some some form of divine guidance and this would set up the high priest so we started off looking at Genesis 49 and how The emphasis is on the unity of the 12 tribes, not just their differences in terms of the tribe. The first place we saw the emphasis on the unity is in the uniform of the high priest, and the next place is in their encampment as they prepared to leave Mount Sinai. And incidentally, there was a great editorial that came out uh, recently by the Associates of Biblical Research, which is a a group of conservative, biblically uh, Bible-believing, let's say, Uh, believers in inerrancy of scripture uh, archaeologists and one of their foremost archaeologists is a man by the name of Bryant Wood who's published a number of different articles for example in Bible and Spade uh, magazine and he had a very good discussion on the location of Mount Sinai every now and then people ask a question about the location of Mount Sinai the traditional site is down in the southern tip of the uh, uh, Sinai Peninsula in a mountain that is known as Jabal Musa. This is where they have the uh, monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery, where Tischendorf found several codexes or copies of the Old Testament, several other ancient manuscripts. But that is not accepted by most who believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture because it doesn't fit the data. For example, the Bible is very clear as to how long it took the Israelites to go from Um, Egypt to Sinai from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea Uh, Bible talks about the fact that when uh, Moses was coming back from Midian that he met Aaron near where he saw the burning bush well it would be uh, completely out of his way to go down to the southern tip of of, uh, the the, um, uh, Sinai Peninsula to go from Midian to Egypt. Midian was located near uh, ancient and Geber to the east of there which is kind of in the southern part of Jordan uh, for those of you who know where a lot is it was just to the um, just to the east of a lot so you wouldn't go all the way down to the, bottom of the southern tip of Mount Sinai and then come back up to the north to travel that route furthermore if Moses is tending the tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro who's in Midian and it's while he is doing that that he sees the burning bush on, on the mountain and goes up on Mount Sinai. This would be, uh, not even be close to that particular territory. There are and and then again the mountains in, uh, the Mount Sinai is p- depicted in the scriptures as being a rather low mountain and Mount and Jebel Musa is rather high, so it just doesn't fit. And there are a couple of candidates that most conservative archaeologists hold to and believe in that are somewhere near um, the, the, the Negev, not that far from, uh, actually from Kadesh Barnea. So that's just a side note. That As the Jews left Sinai and headed to Kadesh Barnea, they were to follow a specific order of march and alignment when they entered into camp at night they had to camp in a specific order they had to the tabernacle would be in the center of the encampment and then it would be surrounded by three different groups of levitical priests the merarites to the north the gershonites on the west and the kohathites to the south moses aaron and the priests would be stationed on the east which would also be the direction where you'd have the entry, the gate, to the tabernacle. Then that center area, the inner area of the the encampment, would be surrounded by the the 12 tribes. And on the east, you had the most prominent, in the most prominent position was the tribe of Judah. This is, I believe, related to that prophecy that uh, Jacob gave that the indicated that the Messiah would come uh, from the tribe of Judah so you have Judah, uh, Issachar Zebulun, Reuben then Simeon, Gad uh, then uh, on the west you have Ephraim then Manasseh just north of Ephraim then Benjamin and then on the north side Dan to the west, Asher in the middle and Naphtali on the east now I believe I created another slide now what I just did was I added their mothers, because this order isn't random. There is they, they are connected by by birth order and by their mothers, so that on the east Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were all descendants of Leah. So I put Leah's name right in there. They're all their their mother was Leah. Uh, Reuben and Simeon. The next two all were also from Leah. Levi also was from Leah, and so Leah is the mother of those who are uh, inside the encampment. Then, because Levi is inside the encampment, you don't have Levi down here on the, on the southwest corner, so Gad, who is a uh, descendant of Zilpah, who was Leah's maid, moves into into that position. Then on the west, you have uh, the three tribes that are descendants of Rachel. Benjamin and and Joseph, of course, were the only two sons of of Rachel. And Joseph's two sons are Manasseh, or as the Israelis pronounce it, Menasheh. You have Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim. And those are the the descendants of Rachel. Then you move to the north side. You have the three tribes of Dan, who is a descendant of Bilhah, one of Rachel's, I mean, Rachel's maid. Then Asher in the middle, uh, born to Zilpah, who was Leah's maid. And Naphtali in the northeast uh, quadrant there, uh, descendant of Bilhah, who was Rachel's maid. So there is an order here in terms of their, their mothers and their birth order. If you take a, uh, spend some time studying this, you not only realize that they are linked with those to whom they are most closely related, but each group is led off by the most prominent tribe of that group. Judah is the most prominent of that group. Reuben is the most prominent of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Uh, Ephraim is the most prominent of those three, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And um, Dan is the most prominent of the of the others, and three of the cases, the tribal leader or the group leader was the oldest, except for Ephraim, who was the youngest, but he was given the blessing of being the leadership. A tradition comes down from the Jews that each of the four that each group had a standard, they had a flag, and each flag had a, a creature on that flag that symbolized uh, that particular. Uh, leader, So Judah had a lion, Reuben's uh, uh, standard depicted a man, Ephraim's depicted an ox, and Dan's uh, standard depicted an eagle. But this is not listed in the scripture. This is just rabbinical tradition. And, of course, if you think about those four creatures, the lion, the man, the ox, and the eagle, what do you think of? You think of the uh, faces of the four living creatures in Revelation or you think of the cherub in uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. So there's an arrangement there. Then as we go into the land, uh, they would march each day and would be led off by Judah and the first three, then Reuben, the second three, then the tent of meeting, uh, Moses, the Aaron, and, and uh, the Levites, then Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, and then finally Dan, Asher, and Naphtali so that would give their line of march each day as we go through scripture remember you go from the exodus then you go to the conquest and during the conquest they began operating as a unity trusting God they had victory at Jericho there's a failure because of Achan and sin in the camp because he disobeyed God and he took a lot of plunder for himself and so God uh, punished him and and because there was the sin in the camp they had uh, failure. They were defeated at the first uh, battle at Ai, and then after they dealt with sin, they had victory at Ai. Then they defeated the northern confederation of kings and the southern confederation of kings, and this uh, led them to conquer the strong points in the land. But that wasn't enough to give them a full a full control of the land and as they went into their mopping up operation judges one tells us that they consistently and increasingly compromised and they fell apart during the period of the judges they no longer function as a as a unit as a group they're just all fragmented and that's exactly what arrogance and sin does to any nation to any people as it leads to fragmentation division and discord and that is of course What happened during that period? Following that, there was a what I would call a genuine revival. The people returned to God, especially under David. You had the United Kingdom under the three kings of Saul, then David, then Solomon. Following Solomon, there was a tax revolt uh, that occurred because uh, Solomon, in all of his great building programs, he built the temple, he built his own palace, he did he expanded the kingdom to the largest extent that it ever existed it never fully uh, controlled the land that God had promised to Abraham but he came very close under Solomon Uh, however the taxes that Solomon imposed upon the people uh, were egregious and onerous and when Solomon died his son uh, Rehoboam became the king Rehoboam instead of listening to his father's wise older experienced counselors decided that uh, it would be better to listen to the young men and he increased the taxes even though they were already burdensome by Solomon he went ahead and increased taxes this is why God had warned them in 1 Samuel 7 that if you want to have a king this is what he's going to do he's going to increase taxes he's going to draft your young men into the army he's going to uh, engage in all these building programs That the problem with big government is big government what big government does is big government just feeds itself by uh, thinking that it owns everything that the people owns, that, that they don't work for it, it belongs to it belongs to the government. And that was God's warning in 1 Samuel 7. It's a lesson we ought to learn today, that uh, the government's always going to be involved in excessive taxation because it's, uh, uh, it's too impressed with itself. There is a place for taxation, as Jesus recognized, but uh, it always tends to lead to a bloated government and people pay the price. Well, as a result of the increased taxation by Rehoboam, there was a tax revolt led by a man named Jeroboam who uh, organized the ten northern tribes, and they became known as the nation of Israel. There was a separation. Civil war occurred. Separation, the tribes in the north followed Jeroboam, and the only place where you have the phrase ten tribes in all of the Bible is in First Kings uh, chapter 11, verses uh, 35 and following. It's used twice, and that's it. Because it, even though generally they, that was referred to as the ten tribes, that was more of an idiom. Remember in the south, Simeon's territory was uh, within the territory of, of Judah. You also had Benjamin had the small territory around around Jerusalem. So you didn't just have the two tribes of Of Judah and Benjamin you had Simeon but by the time of the United Monarchy Simeon had basically been assimilated or absorbed into into Judah furthermore you had a uh, you had the Levites who weren't distinct and they were scattered throughout all of the tribes so in the north basically you really have about eight distinct tribes but by the time of the division into north and south Tribal affiliation becomes less significant than geographical location. And there were many people in the north who were believers, who understood the law, who moved south after the Jeroboam revolt because Jeroboam, in order to uh, unify the people, decided the best thing to do that was to give them their own religion so they wouldn't have to go south and worship the god of uh, Judah in Jerusalem, So he set up an idol in Shechem, and he set up another idol base in uh, the territory of Dan in the north, which we have studied in the course of this particular study in Genesis 49. So there were two places where they could go to worship the idols, one in the south and one in the north. And um, as a result of that, uh, the kings in the north all followed in Jeroboam's sin. And there's one thing that you hear again and again and again like a broken record as you read through First and Second Kings is that with regard to the kings in the north, they say so-and-so followed in the footsteps of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there wasn't one good king in the north. Every one of them followed Jeroboam in the sin of idolatry. And so God took them out in divine discipline in 722 uh, B.C. through the Assyrians. The Assyrians invaded and conquered the north, and it was part of the Assyrian policy to repopulate people, to take them and and move them around. And as a result of that, something developed, called a phrase developed called the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. Remember, we're studying what happens to the unit. Well, they split with the between ten and two, and then all of a sudden, the northern tribe is uh, Israel. The kingdom of Israel is defeated, and so people say, "What happened to the ten northern tribes?" In Second um, Kings seventeen twenty-two through twenty-three, we hear uh, God's statement of why He condemned and wiped out the northern kingdom. He says for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did they departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had said by all his servants the prophets so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day Now what happened to those ten northern tribes well let me give you a summary first of all many believers in the north saw it coming and they left. They moved south. Also, many of the Levites who wished to remain Orthodox also moved to the south. And, uh, at, and so um, that was a big part of it. They didn't disappear completely. They moved to the south. Actually, there are four positions when people talk, start talking about what happened to the ten tribes. The first view is... That they became completely absorbed into all the various nations that the Assyrians uh, uh, transported them to, and they lost their identity. Nobody could ever identify anyone in the Ten Lost Tribes because they're lost. And there have been some Jews who have taken that position. One of whom was a very famous rabbi by the name of Akiba, who was a very big part of the uh, revolt that took place among the uh, uh, from the Jews against Rome in 135. And Rabbi Akiba took that position, but it was always a minority position. The second view, which is one that's stated by Josephus, is that they were removed beyond the Euphrates and perhaps, a, and some passages mention a mysterious river by the name of the Sumbachon River, and nobody knows what that was. But the idea was that they had been removed so far away that they couldn't return, but they were prosperous, they were numerous, and someday they would, uh, they would return third view is and this is a really strange view but you have to throw it in uh, that the ten lost tribes migrated to Europe and became known as the Saxons and then the Saxons moved to England and the Anglo-Saxons are really uh, that which would be the Brits and the Americans are the descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel and that's known as British Israelism and Herbert Armstrong used to teach that in and his particular aberration of Christianity and there are many others. I've gotten, I remember the first time I got in an argument with somebody over that. I was in a Bible church up on the north side of Houston and there was somebody who just was con- absolutely convinced that Anglo-Saxons were the ten lost tribes of Israel. So you may laugh at it, but it has a strange position that has its, its advocates. It has no support historically or biblically whatsoever and the fourth position which is I think the most accurate position is that only some of the population in the north were actually uh, removed most of them stayed in place others moved south into uh, into Judah uh, second Chronicles chapter 30 records Hezekiah's invitation to those in the north to come south and to be protected uh, furthermore uh, the annals of Sargon, which have been discovered in the 20th century, indicate that he transported only 27,290 people and 50 chariots out of the northern kingdom. And the population, most people believe the population was somewhere between 4 and 500,000 in the northern kingdom. So only 30,000, approximately 30,000 are removed. So that still leaves a sizable number uh, of, of uh Israelites in the north. A hundred years after their destruction, in 622, uh, a number of Israelites moved south to help in the repair of the temple under the revival of Josiah. 2 Chronicles 34.9 says that when they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Who? Manasseh and Ephraim, these are northern tribes, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, which they had brought back to Jerusalem. So at that time, they still had a clear identification of northern tribes. Others at that time came south to celebrate the feast, 2 Chronicles 35, uh, 17 and 18 indicates that the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for seven days. And there had been no Passover kept in Israel, northern kingdom, like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present. That's northern tribes when it mentions uh, Israel there. Furthermore, modern archaeological evidence confirms what the Bible teaches, that there was an increase of population in the south after the uh, northern kingdom was destroyed. 2 Chronicles 11.14 uh, uh, talks about them. The Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. And they, they uh, moved there, and verse 16 says, after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. Following, so following the return from exile, and then following the return from exile after the Babylonian captivity, 1 Chronicles 9, 2 and 3 states, Now the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions in the cities were the Israelites, the priests, Levites, and the Nethanim, and in Jerusalem dwelt of the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin, and the children of who? Ephraim and Manasseh, northern tribes. So after the return from Babylonian captivity, they knew who was of the the ten tribes. There were elements of all 12 tribes living in what became uh, known as uh, Judea or Judah. You get into the New Testament, and remember when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple, Uh, for his dedication on the eighth day they run into a uh, a man there is a prophet Simeon who's been waiting for the Messiah because God had promised him he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah and also a woman named Anna who is stated in the text to be of the tribe of Asher a northern tribe so she was identified furthermore in James 1.1 James addresses the twelve tribes scattered as does Peter So it indicates that there was still an identification in the first century of all of the 12 tribes. Now, in prophecy, we know that all tribes will be involved. In Revelation chapter 7, it records that 12,000 from each of 12 tribes will be sealed as evangelists after the rapture of the church. The list of the tribes there includes every one except Dan and Ephraim. Now, it's interesting because Dan... Is associated with idolatry in the north. Ephraim was associated with the idolatry around Shechem under under uh, Jeroboam's idolatrous system. Ezekiel chapters forty to forty eight describes the role of the tribes and the allotment of land to them in the millennium. That each tribe will receive an equal share in uh, in order from north to south: Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, Judah. Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, and they would each receive equal amounts of territory. They're all mentioned in the millennial kingdom. Now, what does that tell us? As we go through passages like Genesis 49, we realize that God is always faithful to his word. This is what distinguishes the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, from all other religious systems is that God declares the end from the beginning he announces exactly what is going to take place centuries ahead of time and it is fulfilled with incredible uh, precision now next time we come back we'll wrap up chapter 49 look at the next section from 49:29 uh, down to chapter 50 verse 14 which deals with the death and the burial of Jacob Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to be encouraged by your faithfulness and the outworking of your plan in the nation of Israel down through history. Father, we pray that you'd encourage and strengthen us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.